The Literate Caveman Podcast, Episode 8, The Logic of Failure. Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with, as well as addressing the topic of mindset in general. I'm your host, Chad Blake, and today we are going to continue our review of The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. Some of the subjects we covered in our last episode were the difficulties of working with complex systems, the author's innovation and stability indices, and how the capacity to tolerate uncertainty impacts the decision-making process. We also discussed how the author of The Logic of Failure, Dietrich Dorner, compared the events of his Taniland and Greenville experiments to real-life events at the Chernobyl reactor in Ukraine. Today, you and I will continue our discussion, moving on to Chapter 2 of the book. The author opens the chapter by explaining some of the similarities between his tests and the real-life events of Chernobyl. Some of the challenges in dealing with systems are, number one, we cannot, as observers or even as managers, business owners or whatever, see everything we would like to see. Number two, all systems develop, to some extent, independent of external control. Number three, Systems develop according to their own internal dynamics, which leaves us in a place where the lessons we learn from one job, business, or relationship will not necessarily transfer with complete effectiveness to a new job, business, or relationship. Number four, when we do not fully understand a system, as in a job, business, relationship, etc., there is a danger of making false assumptions. The author sums up these challenges by labeling them complexity, internal dynamics, and incomplete understanding, and what Dorner terms intra-transparent, which I think may be a word he is trying to coin. I actually could not find a definition for it on Merriam-Webster, but Dorner defines it as not being able to see everything one would like to see. He explores complexity first. Quoting from the text, he says, Complexity is a label we will give to the existence of many interdependent variables in a given system. The more variables and the greater the interdependence, the greater that system's complexity. Paradoxically, he cautions against the temptation to simplify complexity. I know that may sound strange, but it sounds like that is a normal reaction to complexity. To support this, Dorner explains that complexity is not an objective factor, but a subjective one. In other words, what may be very complex, even overwhelming to one person, might be fairly simple to another. The example he provides to support this is driving a car. For a novice driver, driving a car can be an overwhelming experience. With many factors to pay attention to and many important details that cannot be ignored. To the experienced driver, however, the experience of driving a car is quite different. The main factor that separates the novice from the experience is what Dorner calls supersignals. This leads us to our word for the day, which is gestalt. Gestalt, according to Merriam-Webster, is something that is made of many parts and yet is somehow more than or different from the combination of its parts. An example of a gestalt is a face. To an acquaintance, A person's face is not a confusing combination of contours, surfaces, and color variations, but a face. Quoting from the text, 
The author says, Supersignals reduce complexity, collapsing a number of features into one. Consequently, complexity must be understood in terms of a specific individual and his or her supply of supersignals. We learn supersignals from experience, and our supply can differ greatly from another individual's. Therefore, there can be no objective measure of complexity. Next, Dorner explains that reality is not passive. The difference, he tells us, between complex systems and something like a game of chess is that chess pieces do not act on their own. They wait for the players to make decisions, and unless players are using timers or agree on a time limit, there is no time pressure. In dealing with complex systems, in addition to the people involved, sometimes working together, sometimes working against each other in a complex system, some variables act on their own, without direct involvement from whomever is supposed to be in charge. Next, Dorner explains that reality is not passive. The difference, he tells us, between complex systems and something like a game of chess is that chess pieces do not act on their own. They wait for the players to make decisions, and unless players are using timers or agree on a time limit, there is no time pressure. In dealing with complex systems, in addition to the people involved, sometimes working together, sometimes working against each other, in a complex system some variables act on their own, without direct involvement from whoever is supposed to be in charge. And because the components within a complex system can act on their own, there is time pressure. Quoting from the text, we must often make do with tentative solutions, because time pressure forces us to act before we can gather complete information or outline a comprehensive plan. A little further on, he adds, We cannot content ourselves with observing and analyzing situations at any single moment, but must instead try to determine where the whole system is heading over time. End quote. From here, Dorner goes into more detail about what he calls intratransparence. Quoting from the text, what we really want to see may not be visible. We must make decisions affecting a system whose momentary features we can see only partially, unclearly, in blurred and shadowy outlines, or, possibly, not at all. End quote. Dorner tells us that a person's reality model guides how a person makes decisions. An individual reality model can be either explicit, meaning the individual is aware of the model and is at least intending to operate based off of determined guidelines, or a reality model may be implicit, what we normally call intuition. When the reality model is implicit, the individual may not be aware they are operating on a set of assumptions and be unable to articulate what those assumptions are. A good example, he tells us, of implicit knowledge is someone who can hear a song they have never heard before and know who the composer is. Another way to phrase implicit knowledge is when a person is relying on implicit knowledge. They might know what they are doing, but they cannot articulate it. When I used to teach self-defense, I and other instructors I knew would talk about the difference between instinct and intuition. Instinct is what we are born with. Intuition, another name for implicit knowledge, comes from life experience. This leads us to an interesting place. Dorner tells us that he believes implicit knowledge can be very useful, but while explicit knowledge is easier to verbalize, it cannot always be made useful. 
A subject matter expert is a good example of someone with explicit knowledge. If you're a sports fan, you may be more familiar with the idea of an armchair quarterback. A person's reality model, the author advises, can be right or wrong, complete or incomplete. Quoting again from the text, he says, As a rule, it will be both incomplete and wrong, and one would do well to keep that probability in mind. But that is easier said than done. People are most inclined to insist they are right when they are wrong, and, and when they are beset by uncertainty. End quote. He goes on to tell us that people prefer their incorrect hypothesis to correct ones and will fight tooth and nail rather than abandon an idea that is demonstrably false. The ability to admit ignorance or mistaken assumptions is indeed a sign of wisdom. End quote. The innate desire for security prevents people from accepting the possibility that their assumptions may be wrong. Dorner and his team came to believe that there is a tendency to cultivate an allowance for incomplete and incorrect information in order to deal with complex situations. Once again, Dorner uses chess to provide a visual analogy. He asks us to imagine a chessboard that instead of having the normal number of pieces, has several dozen pieces, and on top of that, all the pieces are connected by rubber bands, so that if you move one piece, it affects all the other pieces. In addition to that, in this mental example, the pieces may move on their own, for reasons neither player can fully understand. Finally, in this example, some of the player and opponent's pieces are concealed in fog, masking not only their position, but their purpose. This, he says, is a model of complex situations. This leads us to two questions posed by the author. Number one, what specifically do we have to do to assess a complex problem? And number two, what demands does solving such problems place on us? These questions impose certain demands on us when we are faced with a complex situation. We have to find a way to keep track of complicated interrelations as much as we can. We also need a clear idea of what we are trying to achieve and how. Finally, we need to be able to judge, honestly and without bias, our successes and failures. The first step we must take is in clearly defining our goals when dealing with any complex situation. This might seem obvious, but the evidence from the Tanaland and Greenville experiments suggests people often have only a vague idea of what their goals are. It is not enough, using an example from the text, to say the goal is to create a better quality of life for the residents in a town, city, or suburb. The reason is evident. What specific factor will improve the quality of life in a specific setting? Off the top of your head, you can probably think of several things that would improve the area you live in. However, your neighbor might have a different list if asked to produce one. And the neighbor down the street might have still other thoughts. Making the goal improve the quality of life, not only vague but inadequate. Dorner cautions at stating goals comparatively. He gives the examples of better transportation network or more user-friendly indicates that the goal setter does not know precisely what they want. This leads us to another of the author's points. It is easy to say we need clear goals, but time constraints do not always allow you and I to gather all the information we really need to make the best decisions. Some of this, on a day-to-day -day level, has very practical constraints. 
We live in complicated, perhaps even convoluted times. And to cope with this, you and I have to filter out the information we do not believe to be important to us and focus on the information we believe to be important. Now, that is all fine, you might say, but what is the solution? Merely gathering all relevant information is not adequate. We need to arrange the information into an overall picture, something we can use to make effective decisions. If the information gathering is random and unfocused, it will just make the situation more confusing. So we need to do our best to gather relevant information. Try our best to reject information that is not relevant. And this brings me to a point that is not part of the text, but one of my own observations. Sometimes, information is true, but not important. I think understanding this concept can help in navigating this subject. I will give an example from my strength and conditioning background. I'll keep it concise, just bear with me a moment. Years ago, I attended a lecture from a scientist who consulted for a supplement company. The company in question manufactures primarily essential fatty acids in the form of harvested fish oil from sustainable sources. At the time, they were a leading manufacturer of such products and had a very good reputation. I should probably say that they still have a good reputation and make a good product. However, I think there is much more competition these days. Anyway, the point is that after the talk, the scientist was complaining about a competing company that claimed their omega-3 product absorbed at a faster rate than the one he was representing. I do not remember exactly, but I think the claim was something like this other product absorbed nine times faster. Now, it is easy to hear that and think, well, I am taking this supplement because I believe in the benefits it has, so surely absorbing faster is better. This is a great example of something potentially being true, but not important. The reason is because if someone supplements with omega-3s, or even if they choose to get all their omega-3s from whole food sources, the point is to saturate the cells, so the body has an adequate level of omega-3s on a cellular level. Omega-3s need to be consumed on a regular basis to achieve this, and once this is established, all that is needed is regular consumption of omega-3s and being deliberate about not over-consuming omega-6s. How quickly you absorb, or digest, the omega-3s is not important. The issue is about the frequency of consumption and the ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s in the diet. I pointed out to the scientist, who was well aware of these mechanics but had not established the logic chain, that it might be true that the competing product absorbed quicker, but that was not important. I wish I had a picture of the look on his face when he had his light bulb moment. I hope this makes sense. I am sure if you give it some thought, you can find an example in your own life, either from your profession or a hobby, of a fact that is true but not necessarily important. Being able to make this distinction can really help when you are dealing with a complex situation and trying to determine what information needs to be considered when formulating your goals. Filtering out distractions and information that is not relevant will save you a lot of time and frustration. Returning to the text, the author advises that if we have, number one, clearly defined our goals, and number two, organize those goals into a useful model, the third step is to extrapolate what we expect from the decisions we make. Quoting from the text in regards to this third step, Dorner says, This is how things look now. What can we expect to happen next? 
The answer to this question is usually more important for planning future measures than in the current situation. End quote. He goes on to say that, quote, thinking in terms of developmental trends and understanding such trends will enable us to prepare for future events. End quote. This leads to some interesting commentary on how people have a tendency to default to previous behavior when confronted with similar situations. Dorner calls this default ritual, but he also mentions a man named Karl von Clausewitz, who lived from 1780 to 1831, who used the term Methodism. Interestingly, while Dorner states that reverting to previous behavior can be simple-minded, it can also be practical. One reason he points out is that when we follow a previous method, we do not have to start from scratch to decide how to handle a new situation. The trade-off is it can limit exploring creative solutions to problems. Quoting from the text, Many psychological experiments have demonstrated how people's range of action is limited by their tendency to act in accordance with pre-established patterns. The key, Dorner tells us, is to know when to follow established practice and when to develop new strategies. I have talked about this elsewhere, but it seems to be a recurring theme in a lot of the books I have studied over the years. It is phrased differently from book to book, but in books on government, economics, tactics, even fitness, having some flexibility and willingness to consider more than one strategy is crucial. Gavin de Becker has famously stated that we only use all our predictive resources when we consider more than one outcome. The way that I have phrased this for years is, we must do what is appropriate at the time. I know this sounds simple, but simple is not always easy. There is a tendency to have a method, what we might call here a ritual or a pattern, and I think there are two reasons people will default to previous methods. The first is because of previous success, especially if the previous situation was a difficult one and the end result was good. I think it is understandable that anyone would fall back on what they have done before. As Dorner points out, this can be efficient behavior if the strategy we rely on is the correct one. The second reason, and this might surprise you, is social pressure. I will dial this back to a simple example that I have found most people can relate to. Let's examine a simple comparison between stereotypical nice people and stereotypical assertive people. Some people learn that being assertive, up to and including being belligerent, can be a way to get what they want. Some of this is a personality thing, some of this is learned. People who operate this way learn that if they are aggressive and or assertive, they tend to get what they want with less opposition. Some people learn that they do not need to be aggressive all the time, but some do not. The ones that do not are more likely to be influenced by social expectations. That may sound strange to you if you have never considered this, but some of these people are afraid that if they display kindness, they will be seen as weak. On the flip side, some people learn, instead of being assertive, to be nice. They get a reputation for being nice, and they get to a point where they are afraid to say no to requests that might seem reasonable, or potentially even requests that are not reasonable. Some people who get stuck in this pattern often overcommit and stretch themselves too thin. Being nice is part of their identity, just as being assertive is part of the identity of our other example. Social expectations keep this nice person from asserting themselves, even when it would be reasonable, even when it would be healthier for them than being nice. 
Working outside of their label feels like a threat to their identity, so they might put up with behavior they do not like, but are not comfortable challenging directly. Learning how to identify what is appropriate at the time and not allowing ourselves to get labeled into a rut can be challenging due to our own learning patterns and social expectations. But it is a more functional way to live. We will come back to this subject of doing what is appropriate at the time in future talks. As I said, it is a recurring theme in an abundance of literature. Returning to the text, the author makes this point by saying, quote, A planner must know when to follow established practice and when to strike out in a new direction. End quote. Outlining this section of the text, the author establishes that, number one, we have to establish what our goals are. Number two, gather information and rough draft possible solutions to our goals. Number three, predict and extrapolate possible outcomes to our rough draft. We have to objectively review the data we have collected and strive to make the best choices. Number four, decisions and action. Plans are useless without execution. Number five, once a course of action has been selected and is in motion, we must evaluate how close the reality is to our expectations. Being prepared to acknowledge when things are not working, but not overcorrecting or abandoning a course of action too soon. At this point, Dorner cautions us that while it is good to have these steps in place, real situations rarely flow smoothly from one step to the next. Quoting from the text, he says that, More often we notice, as we are gathering information, that our goals are not formulated clearly enough to tell us precisely what kind of information we need. A lot of things can go wrong at any stage of trying to solve a complex problem. This is normal. Real life is messy. You are probably familiar with Murphy's Law that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Dorner cautions that on the one hand, being persistent can pay off, and it can be better to establish a middle ground between clinging stubbornly to a course of action and abandoning a good plan at the first signs of difficulty. He does not suggest this is easy. In fact, he does not suggest any of this is easy. But he encourages the reader that dealing with complex issues often allows revisiting previous steps and making adjustments. If we have clearly defined our goals and are diligent in evaluating our results. This concludes today's episode of The Literate Caveman. Next week, we will be reviewing Dietrich Dorner's advice on the requirements of goal setting. Thank you for listening, and go read a book.